Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about a vaccine versus a vaccination. A piece about why people sometimes say punctuation marks out loud. And a tidbit with my favorite story about a weird 18th century grammar rule. Long, long ago, in my email newsletter, I explained the difference between a vaccine and a vaccination. And now that it's the season to get flu shots and people are talking about Ebola vaccines, I thought it would be a good time to include it in the podcast. A vaccine is the fluid they inject into you or the aerosol you inhale. It's the preparation of an inactivated microbe or virus that stimulates an immune response that helps protect you from disease. For example, a nurse could report that the vaccine arrived yesterday. Picture a tube of liquid. A vaccination is the shot you get. It's the introduction of the vaccine into your body. You get a vaccination when someone administers the vaccine to you. A nurse could say, we can start giving vaccinations now, or we run a vaccination clinic. We typically think of a vaccination as something that protects you from getting sick if you encounter a bacteria or virus in the future. That's how the flu vaccine works. It won't do any good if you get it after you already have the flu. But occasionally, scientists also use the words vaccine or therapeutic vaccine to describe a treatment that triggers an immune response after a person has been infected. Right now, researchers are working on Ebola vaccines that might do both, help people resist infection and respond better after they've been infected. In summary, the vaccine is the liquid itself, and a vaccination is the act of administering the vaccine. And that was your quick and dirty tip. Next, I have a piece by Sile Graves about how and why people say punctuation out loud. This is in reply to some interesting questions and observations posed by a reader named Frank T. He had two observations. First, Recently, President Obama said something like, we never leave any soldier behind. Full stop. And his second observation was, sometimes someone will say something like, let's go to the store, comma, and then eat dinner. And then he had three questions. One, which came first, the voice or punctuation? Two, what's the relationship between punctuation and speaking aloud? And three, is there punctuation that the human voice can't replace? And are there voice tones that punctuation can't capture? Let's start with question one. Which came first, the voice or punctuation? That's easy, voice. 
Linguistic research suggests that human languages have been spoken for at least 50,000 years, but that the earliest writing systems didn't appear until about 5,000 years ago. Many languages in the world today still have no writing system at all. They're only spoken, yet they're just as rich and complex as written languages. In addition, we acquire spoken language by mere exposure, with virtually no instruction, and when we're so young, we don't even remember it. In contrast, reading and writing, as you'll remember from grade school, require many years of explicit instruction and practice. In this way, writing systems, including spelling and punctuation conventions, are an artificial extension of or means of recording speech, which is a natural human phenomenon. Now on to Frank's second question. What's the relationship between punctuation and speaking aloud? The answer is that the relationship is a very imperfect one. In some ways, punctuation is designed to replicate speech features, but only some. All native speakers of a language follow unconscious rules, which we were never explicitly taught, about the way that your voice goes up and down in pitch, along with other things such as pausing or stressing certain words louder and longer than others, which is why we don't talk like robots. As we all know, written text doesn't indicate tone, although punctuation sometimes indicates some tonal features. However, punctuation frequently doesn't match the voice, which leads to the answer to double question number three. Is there a punctuation that the human voice can't replace, and are there voice tones that punctuation can't capture? The answer is yes, absolutely, to both. Punctuation rules have been established out of a need to clarify sentences that would otherwise be confusing when written out, and then made regular by convention. Because Old English was handwritten instead of printed, punctuation was inconsistent. Periods were sometimes placed at midline height, and question marks were optional, as was capitalizing the first word of each sentence. Middle English made only slight improvements on this, so we've come a long way today. Yet, punctuation still can't tackle every possibly confusing when written out sentence, which we'll get back to. Correct punctuation does sometimes replicate spoken language closely. For example, some mandatory commas do show where you should pause when speaking. There was a comma after the phrase, for example, in the last sentence, and there was also a natural pause there in the spoken version. Notice that it's possible to remove the pause there, but it's less common. You can try it. Another case where commas align with voice patterns is when both are needed to make your meaning clear. For example, in the following sentence, there's no comma and also no pause. I don't think I know. The meaning is that the person is pretty sure about not knowing the answer, but there's some doubt or a possibility that the person might know it. In contrast, if we add a comma, which is also read aloud as a pause, we get this. I don't think. I know. The meaning this time is that the person is 100% positive about knowing the answer and wishes to indicate that there is no hesitation or room for doubt. They're the same words, but the comma and the spoken pause completely change the meaning. I don't think I know. I don't think I know. Even when punctuation seems to exactly copy voice patterns, it's often surprisingly limited. Consider the three versions of the following sentence. 
The first one ends with a period. Squiggly doesn't like chocolate. The natural way to read the sentence aloud is by not really raising or lowering your voice at the end. Now consider the same sentence with a question mark. Squiggly doesn't like chocolate? The question mark is used to show that the voice goes up at the end. Finally, the exclamation point makes us read it louder without raising the tone at the end. Squiggly doesn't like chocolate. However, notice that the punctuation still doesn't perfectly narrow down all the ways the human voice can express nuance or respond to specific contexts. You can still say this last version of the sentence in multiple ways, even with the exclamation point. For example, it can be read aloud with a slight stress on the word like. Squiggly doesn't like chocolate which may mean that someone has suggested a chocolate cake for Squiggly's birthday and the speaker's exclaiming a reason to pick a different flavor. It can also be read aloud with a slight stress on the first part of the word chocolate. Squiggly doesn't like chocolate, which would make sense if the speaker were very surprised by this fact about Squiggly. Furthermore, some punctuation marks, like the hyphens in sister-in-law, don't change how you say or emphasize anything. They're just road signs for the reader. They alert us to what's coming after sister. Conversely, we stress the first syllable in words like record when the word's a noun, but we stress the second syllable, record, when the word serves as a verb in the sentence, with no punctuation marks to indicate which is which. For reading stress within a written word, English depends on context. Languages such as Spanish, in contrast, make use of an accent mark to indicate syllable stress. But in both languages, speakers stress the intended syllable automatically when they talk. The point is that the relationship between written and spoken language is fluid. You can't expect them to match perfectly. One reason they don't match is that written language is a different genre from spoken language, or what linguists call register, like a language style. To explain this, here's an example of correct punctuation that does not match speech. Many people believe that commas are only used when pauses are found, but in the following sentence a comma is required by traditional writing rules, even though pausing there or not pausing there both sound natural in speech. It's a nice day, isn't it? Or, it's a nice day, isn't it? Conversely, in casual speech, many people pause in hesitation after the word although, using it to mean however but commas after any subordinating conjunction like although are strictly prohibited in writing. Sometimes the way we say something makes it clearer than we can make it by just using text or punctuation. Consider this sentence. Janet told the story to Lisa and then she told it to Mary. Who committed the second telling act in the sentence? In writing, it could be either Lisa or Mary. But if we speak it spontaneously, we're very likely to emphasize specific words to make it clear. Janet told the story to Lisa, and then she told it to Mary. That time, Janet told the story both times. To make it clear, however, that Lisa told the story to Mary, it would sound like this. Janet told the story to Lisa, and then she told it to Mary. What's interesting here is that we do have formatting options, that would let us show which word to emphasize, such as italics, bold, or capital letters. Yet these formatting conventions vary by writing genre. Italic stress is used frequently in dialogue, for example, while boldface is often employed in textbooks. 
What happens to writers in every writing genre, from college essays to emails, is that we read the intended intonation or contrastive stress in our heads as we write, but we don't realize that the reader won't know which version we intended. Unlike in speech, where we can stress any word we like in order to express the meaning we want. Plus, because formatting for word stress isn't required, like those hyphens and sister-in-law are, using it can be a cop-out anyway. Some writing instructors say you should avoid using formatting to make your meaning clear. If you need special formatting, what it often means is you should rewrite your sentence. A final example of the remarkable superiority, so to speak, of spoken language is a problem we have all had with email, in particular, sarcasm. Anecdotally, most of us have experienced arguments by email that escalate quickly, often because the reader hears negativity the writer may not have intended, or misses sarcasm where the writer did intend it. Sarcasm is something the voice often captures fairly clearly. But for which we have no punctuation, some people have even proposed adding a symbol to show sarcasm, such as the sark mark that you can download. But none of them have caught on yet. Here's an example of punctuation that can make things clear when spoken English can't: the possessive apostrophe at the end of a plural word. In the phrase "my brother's house," we can see in writing that there's only one brother because the apostrophe comes before the final s. But if several brothers live together, we can write "my brother's house" with the apostrophe after the s. But in speech, both phrases are pronounced the same way. Finally, there are some sentences that have more than one meaning and cannot be clarified with punctuation or voice. For example, "flying planes can be dangerous" can revert to the gerund "flying," meaning that pilots have a risky job. Or to the adjective "flying," meaning that the planes in the air are dangerous to others. Any way you say it, it's still ambiguous. So in this case, explaining out loud or rewriting would be the only options. Now, what about speaking punctuation out loud, as our reader Frank observed? It's actually a separate topic from the general match and mismatch between spoken and written language. Let's start with observation number one, courtesy of President Obama. Frank reports him as saying something like, "We never leave any soldier behind." Full stop. Well, first of all, full stop is just a British English term for the punctuation mark. Period. A similar regional variation is that British English uses exclamation mark, while American English tends to use exclamation point. Although Obama isn't British, full stop has become common in American English too. If we replace it with period in a paraphrase of Obama's example, it sounds equivalent. We never leave any soldier behind. Period. Now that the terminology is out of the way, let's get onto the meaning. Obama isn't superfluously adding punctuation because his listeners might be unable to process the meaning of his statement without it. He's simply using "full stop" as a euphemism to emphasize the idea that there's no room for argument or discussion. In that way, he's using the name of the punctuation symbol to express something akin to. And there are no exceptions to this rule. He's not, however, using punctuation to capture a nuance that spoken language can't capture. If an exception were to be added to the end of the sentence, a comma would probably introduce it, not a period. Like this: We never leave any soldier behind, comma, except in certain extenuating circumstances. On the other hand, Frank's observation number two. Sometimes someone will say something like, "Let's go to the store, comma, and then eat dinner," 
is something a little different. Sometimes saying required punctuation symbols in speech is used as a comic device. Some great examples have been uttered by 30 Rock character Tracy Jordan, like this one. Character Jenna Maroney despairs, He's evil, Tracy. To which Tracy replies, He's evil, Tracy? Oh, he's evil, comma, Tracy. It's true that in writing a comma must come before a proper name when the utterance right before it is directed at that person, which is called direct address. However, in speech, there's no pause where that comma goes and no difference in intonation between describing an evil version of Tracy, meaning evil Tracy, a bit like saying Happy Sally, and simply using the name Tracy to address Tracy Jordan. The reason Tracy's comment sounds so ridiculous is due to the part of linguistics that includes non-linguistic context or situational factors. If Jane looks right at Bob and says, Bob, Bob assumes that Jane is addressing him directly due to unconscious social rules and convention, such as eye contact. These play a role in successful communication between speakers. Therefore, Tracy intentionally ignores the convention and then exploits the fact that the sentence is technically both ambiguous and pronounced the same way no matter what you mean. For Jenna Maroney's intended meaning, a comma is required in writing. For Tracy Jordan's initial incorrect interpretation, you wouldn't write it with a comma. You'd probably use a capital letter for evil, making it read aloud like the name, Evil Tracy. But either way, you don't pronounce the capital letters or the comma, because the direct address takes care of the clarification. People also say punctuation out loud to creatively express certain subtleties. For example, in writing, quotation marks are used for reported speech and can sometimes indicate sarcasm, which we saw earlier as difficult to express in writing. Or they can assign a virtual property to a term. Let's say Jane wants to indicate that Bill said something really ridiculous— She can say something like this. Then Bill accused me of quote-unquote sabotaging his career. Jane can even use air quotes instead of saying quote-unquote, unless she's speaking to someone on the phone. In fact, Tracy Jordan puts air quotes around the word comma when he says evil comma Tracy in the 30 Rock episode. You may remember that last year we wrote about people saying someone is an actor-slash-model, or even using the word slash as an adverb. Certain expressions, such as quote-unquote and actor-slash-model, have become widely understood and can be acceptable even in formal spoken language. Obama's use of full stop, for example, doesn't create a feeling of informality at all. Rather, it comes across stylistically as a relatable idiom, something that everyone in his audience can understand. In conclusion, punctuation is complicated and takes some time to learn, unlike using our audible voice and intonation, which we do instinctively to clarify utterances that can have several meanings. Punctuation sometimes mimics speech, and sometimes it doesn't, and shouldn't. It's occasionally advantageous over speech, but more often it's less able to express nuance that speech expresses beautifully. As for saying punctuation symbols out loud, doing so is style-specific and often contributes to both clarity and nuance. It's fine as long as it's done in the appropriate context. That piece was written by Sayel Graves, a linguist and professor at the City University of New York at LaGuardia Community College. You can find her at sayelgraves.ws.gc.cuny.edu.
And now on to the tidbit. Lindley Murray was a retired lawyer who in the late 1700s decided to write about grammar. His books were exceedingly popular in both Britain and America, having sold more than 15 million copies by 1840, and he is cited with further popularizing many of the grammatical theories put forth by his predecessors, such as Robert Loth. For example, his popular books promoted the notion that you shouldn't end a sentence with a preposition, which is a notion that is not supported by grammarians today. One of his most outlandish ideas, though, is what I want to tell you about today. Grammar books, like so many other things, are a product of their time and culture. And back in the late 1700s, people thought about children very differently than they do today. In Pondering When to Use Who and When to Use That, Murray reached the conclusion that we shouldn't use the word who to refer to babies because they aren't sentient beings. He wrote, quote, We hardly consider little children as persons because that term gives us the idea of reason and reflection, and therefore the application of the personal pronoun who in this case seems to be harsh, unquote. He specifically recommends against writing a child who. He then goes on to note that who is, quote, still more inappropriately applied to animals, unquote. Many of the things people think of as grammar rules today come from Loth and Murray, And I was thinking this most outrageous example helps us realize that these ideas came from fallible men who were writing a long time ago and with very specific points of view. Although there may have been a logic behind the rules, Murray certainly had reasoning for his don't-use-who-for-children rule. It's not always a logic that holds up or that we would choose to embrace today. Further, when you go back and actually look at the text from Murray's English grammar in scanned documents on Google Books, you immediately get a sense of how long ago it was written and how different the language really was. I'll link to that text in the article at quickanddirtytips.com. And thanks to Corey Stamper at Merriam-Webster, I first heard about this funny rule from Murray in the talk that she gave at the American Copy Editor Society meeting last year. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find hundreds of grammar articles at quickanddirtytips.com, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook, where my usernames are Grammar Girl. This podcast is produced in partnership with Macmillan Holdings. That's all. Thanks for listening. At Delta, we know Mike and HC prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.